I think that our notions of our own greatness, of the fact of the idea that we should be the ones who are the most powerful, that we are the ones, we should be the ones who do run the world. I mean, I think that if Americans really pause to consider not being the most powerful people in the world, it's actually terrifying for all of them, because it's just something we have taken for granted for so long. Um, and, you know, again, this is why there is that kind of automatic reflex of just saying, oh, well, you know, it, let's say we made some horrific, tragic error in a foreign country. It's always this thing of like, well, but our, you know, our intentions were good. We, this is sometimes just what happens when you are the person who runs the world. That was Susie Hansen, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is journalist and author Susie Hansen, whose first book, Notes on a Foreign Country, An American Abroad in a Post-American World, blends personal memoir and historical journalism to reflect on America's complicated position in the world and the author's own journey of self-discovery, which unfolded over 10 years working and living in Turkey. A 2018 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction, Hansen's honest and compelling book, deconstructs American exceptionalism and all the gnarly stuff it has wrought and continues to do so, both abroad but also here at home. She joined me from Istanbul. Susie Hansen, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so let's sort of, you know, we'll, we'll cross so many aspects of your writings and what you've been doing the last decade plus uh, based out of Turkey. But at a, at a high level, um, you know, as, as Americans, how would you sort of, sort of diagnose the problem of our cognitive dissonance as it relates to what America is in the world and our sort of domestic, you know, blindness to that reality outside of our borders. Well, it was a very, that was a very hard thing to figure out, actually. I and mean, that was what I was trying to do with this book. And it did take probably about nine years because um, at first I thought I was going to write a book that was about uh, the way that the rest of the world saw us. I had moved to Turkey and I was traveling to a lot of foreign countries and I was working as a journalist. And I was kind of learning about these things for the first time. And at first, that was what I wanted to do was sort of collect the things that I had heard foreigners say from different countries based on their own specific experience with Americans, um, based on their own histories. But as I was working on that book, and I was also doing a tremendous amount of reading, you know, foreign authors who had written about the American relationship with their own country, I realized that I really needed to, to figure out what was wrong with American psychology first. I sort of had to break down you know, why it was that we were unable to um, see countries on their own terms and to, to have a certain kind of empathy about the way that our foreign policy has affected others. And I think that um, ultimately what I started finding out was that, you know, the, the U.S. had set up its nationalism, its national identity, and to some degree its um, post-World War II, Cold War propaganda in such a way that was designed to make us not really care about those foreign countries. Um, it was to inoculate us ourselves against um, feeling as though we were actually having a relationship with those people. And I think that was one of the more sinister things that I discovered as I was working on the book. And I, I came to really wonder if we could change, because I feel like we've really been formed by a lot of those ideas. I think that's uh, 
I think, a central question, I think, that weaves through both reading your book and just discussing the issue in general as we think about the evolution of our empire slash, you know, the American century dot, dot, dot into this one is uh, what are the prospects for real change? Um, and the cynic or the realist perhaps would say that uh, it's unlikely that you're going to see a massive sea change quickly among a population that's been formed, you know, by this history. How do you how do you feel about the prospects for change in a moderately shorter time frame rather than decades and decades of you know slow evolutionary perspective changing? I think that we'll know better after, <laughs> if God willing, it will end soon this Trump period because I do think that this is a huge shift, and I think there are some good things that could potentially come out of it. Although I think that it will involve a lot more anger and and a lot more problems and, and possibly more violence because I think it's just such a tense time. But I think um, I wouldn't have really had that much hope for change um, if Hillary Clinton had won because I do think, and I did want her to win, but I do think that we would have continued along the same course to some degree and even more so maybe a little bit triumphant in that, in that way because uh, we, she would have defeated Trump and we define ourselves, a lot of us define ourselves as against Trump and even liberals. Um, you know, the liberals also have a lot of these same problems in reconciling, you know, what America has done in the rest of the world. So I think, you know, the, thing, the, the opportunity we have now is that um, Trump has made people reconsider everything. It has actually made people ask, OK, what does it actually mean to be American? Is it what he says or what she says or what this person over here says? It's all kind of been scrambled because sometimes he sounds as if he's coming from another planet and other times he sounds like he's just on a continuum. And then what, what I see happening that is kind of you know interesting and sometimes alarming is that what is said back to him or what is said in response to him sometimes reinforces these very ideas of American exceptionalism or American greatness or American nationalism. So you you can see ever more people kind of reasserting, no, 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 this is what it means to, to be American. This is what the American ideals are. Trump, you know, you're, you're, you're contradicting everything that we are. But, but sometimes I think that has the danger of almost reasserting American greatness too much. You know what I mean? And even going back to the way America was before Trump, we're still kind of in the same situation where a lot of us were not reckoning with how much violence and how much damage we had done in the rest of the world. So I think that, you know, what the opportunity is now is if this is going to shake the foundations to such a degree that we actually have to recognize that Trump did come out of us and did come out of our history. And then how could we recreate or uh, create a new identity or sense of ourselves, you know, retaining some of the good things, but really, really coming up with something new. Right. I think it's interesting with Trump, you have obviously the, the sort of outlier, you know, crazy things that he says that seem to come from ignorance and irresponsibility and, and brashness. Then you have the occasional moments when it just happens to seem straightforward and not that far off the mark. And then I think right. it's, it's ironic when you have the moments that actually he stumbles onto something that even though, you know, I was not a supporter of his, you know, do I believe we need to shrink our military footprint around the world? Yes, I do. And right. Trump will make a comment about decreasing troops in South Korea or something else involving Germany or NATO. And, and there'll be this hue and cry. And I just kind of want to say, wait a minute, are we supposed to have troop levels and bases around the world like this forever? Uh, you know, it's, yeah, I think it's interesting you bring that up because I was just I was just uh, listening to a another podcast about the history of NATO and the recent history of NATO. And again, I think this is one of these perfect examples where essentially what people are starting to do is just ask these basic questions about these institutions that they haven't asked before. You know, um, what? Why does NATO still exist? You know, does it need to be updated in some way? What was its purpose in the first place? You know, this was being debated at the at the end of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union. But then, um, you know, and the, it, it continued. So I think that in those ways, you do see some kind of fundamental questioning. It's just that nobody, of course, feels good having him be the one <laughs> leading any right. of this stuff. Exactly. Yeah, it's also interesting, as you say, you know, obviously the liberal media the establishment, the democratic establishment, these spasms of self-doubt and, you know, how did this happen uh, morning after? And yet, 
you talk about in some of the pieces that you've written, you know, in Baffler and Washington Post, kind of from from abroad uh, and a longer, perhaps more clear perspective of America's behavior and posture in the world. His election wasn't that shocking. And, you know, it's not like Obama stopped using drones. If anything, he accelerated right. it. So, you know, I, I sort of wonder, we talk about the silver linings, whether it's the Me Too, although it's not touching him, it's certainly touching many other uh, institutions and, and having a cultural impact, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, and this right. energizing more female candidates and, and the youth, which all feel like silver linings. Uh, and another side, you think, well, even if, quote unquote, we the good guys in the country are successful in unseating this this aberration, why exactly wouldn't we kind of go back to a version of the normal uh, that was Clinton, that the man, that was that was Barack and, you know, and America, establishment yeah. mentality and politics in general? I guess that's, yeah. that was a statement slash, you know, <laughs> where, where, you know what, what makes us think things are going to really change, even though I, I like a lot of things that I see happening, you know, in the culture. I do still think that it's going to be a very painful process because, again, like I was discovering when I was researching this book, I think that our notions of our own greatness, of the fact of the idea that we should be the ones who are the most powerful, that we are the ones, we should be the ones who do run the world. I mean, I think that if Americans really pause to consider not being the most powerful people in the world, it's actually terrifying for all of them. Because it's just something we have taken for granted for so long. Um, and, you know, again, this is why there is that kind of automatic reflex of just saying, oh, well, you know, it, let's say we made some horrific, tragic error in a foreign country. It's always this thing of like, well, but our, you know, our intentions were good. We, this is sometimes just what happens when you are the person who runs the world. And I think, I think that these kinds of very easy conclusions uh, have become such a habit that it would be very hard to dislodge them. And I think the people who were most dependent on that kind of power, meaning, you know, white, usually white men, um, I think are going to be, uh, you know, very, very terrified of this kind of situation. And I think that also, like, we're having a lot of conversations these days, but they're very interior and domestic conversations. We aren't really linking the rise of Trump to the loss of American power in the world or the perception of the loss of American power in the world as much. You know what I mean? Like, right. I, I feel as though we could, that conversation could be broadening. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, uh, I mean, the, the word fear gets used a lot. And I guess if you think about the, the deep down aspects of, of what motivates people, whether, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously fear, you know, is, is certainly one of the big ones. Um, it's, it's funny, it strikes me as, you know, you would think that on some level, rather than fear, in terms of this rebalancing of power and this lessening of the American load, whether or not we, we need to carry it or not, uh, could come with it with a feeling of relief, you know, and a bit of right. like, hey, we can actually take our foot off the gas uh, a little bit and become part of a broader community of nations rather than uh, this kind of exceptionalist uh, policeman of the world, et cetera, mentality that that has done so much harm, despite it, its quote unquote, you know, good intentions. But I don't hear I, you don't you don't hear people saying, you know, I can't wait for us to be a little bit more like a regular country with a lot of great stuff and some bad stuff and you know, <laughs> a history that's checked with good and bad, a lot of blood and and you know, we got great food and we just sort of do our thing. Like people, I don't see Americans projecting forward and thinking about that idea you're right it seems like it's impossible for us to even imagine our place in the world as as really as as one of equals if you want to put it bluntly yeah and i i think um you know another thing that was interesting to me to think about was the way in which these ideas of greatness or specialness or goodness especially goodness you know really affects people on an individual level you know how it affects even your own maybe self-esteem or the way that you see yourself in the world your own individual psychology is, is to some degree possibly determined by 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 this kind of uh, these kinds of characteristics. But then again, I don't know. You know, this is all kind of unconscious. Like we sort of imbibe, we we get the effects of it. But at the same time, people aren't really conscious that they have any 
that their lives have any relationship to that power, you know, or the, or to the prosperity that is that is brought to the country by by being such a powerful country in the world. It, it, the connection is not really made, and you know, my my feeling was that the reason why is because we at the same time uh, have such a strong attachment to this idea that we've made ourselves. You know, we as individuals have all created ourselves. We've lifted us up ourselves up by on our own and, and the bootstraps and all of that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's like one of our central ideas of ourselves. Um, as if the fact that we grew up in the, you know, the world's most powerful country and the wealthiest didn't have something to do with how we turned out. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, it is. I, I myself, of course, didn't think about these things until I moved to Turkey. Well, and you wonder, I mean, obviously we don't have, uh, you know, the Facebook history of, of, you know, citizens in Rome. Uh, you know, we don't have the research, maybe, and I, I'm not an expert, but, you know, uh, the question I go to is, you know, is, is, a, is a citizen of an empire, you know, or a nation that is dominant, uh, particularly if you live not on the edges, right, where the, where the, the exploitation and the sort of governing of, of uh, second-class citizens in that ecosystem are happening, but you're in the heart of it, it you know, it, is it, for the, for, for the most people, is one capable of really seeing things that differently? And, you know, it's uh, whether or not you're talking about people living in London during the height of the British Empire, even people today in major cities, whether you live in Paris and you're, mm. the way you think about living in the center of the French universe, you know, the same is true, obviously, in New York. You know, the attitude that Americans have globally, that, that unconscious sense of superiority exists within the domestic sphere, obviously, between the coastal, uh, you know, big cities and, uh, and the quote-unquote heartland. And, uh, you know, aside from the occasional academic or not even academic, but the person who's thoughtful enough or their travels, I don't mean to sound self-righteous about it, but, it, but you know, how, how can we expect people that are so deeply embedded in a, in, a, in a school of thought and in a way of life to be able to somehow get that detached perspective? Um, you know, has that ever happened in history uh, among a population? Yeah. And, and is there nothing but simply the slow change that will happen and one day people will wake up and go well you know your children's children just kind of realize that it's a different world yeah i think that it, i think that is i mean i think that will happen to some degree i think that it's it's happening certainly in terms of the economy I and mean, this idea the right. idea of the american dream is not the same anything anymore we don't i think it started with i mean i'm 40 so i think it started a, a you know, somewhat with my micro generation where, you know, there was the financial crisis. And I think right after that, um, you know, we, we, it, I remember going from being a person who believed that my life would always go get better. It would always, you know, sort of go up, up, up to now realizing that it won't, you know, and I yep. mean, I'm a journalist, so right. salaries haven't gone up in journalism since the 1970s, but still, still, I had that belief that, you know, your life kind of, improves and it's better than your parents and now we're realizing that theirs was the best the baby right. boomers you know they had it the best and it's never going to be that way again no. and so i think that the millennials you know are very much have already gotten over this idea they're thinking about their lives in a totally different way they will become totally different people than than we were it's very interesting actually no it's true that's definitely true i'm 50 so i'm like a I'm like a an a old Xer, you know on that cusp yeah. of looking up at the boomers of the of the very young boomers right ahead of me I think I remember reading something about the definition of a Gen Xer was someone who didn't really remember pre-Reagan, uh, but I mm. was I was 12 probably when that election with Carter was happening, and I remember uh, at the time being you know very very against him and had a sense of of the re the Republican and Democratic dynamic. Uh, but um, yeah, you're right. The millennials you know focus on experience, the realization of of the gig economy and changing jobs, and uh, the, the modesty. Uh, the financial modesty they're going to have to embrace for the most part. Um, and, uh, yeah, no question, it is changing. Um, toggling a bit, uh, you know, to the James Baldwin of it all, because obviously you talk about him as kind of an intellectual godfather in your book. And uh, obviously the documentary that came out, you know, a year or so ago. And, yeah. Uh, and the, the the sort of amazing uh, sort of the relevance you read him and you feel like it was written yesterday or could have been written yesterday. Can you talk a little bit about his um, his impact on you uh, and also you know you know how you see his writings and his relevance to the moment? Um, yeah, I think you know I read him for the first time when I was 
23 or 24 and it, it completely randomly uh, I wasn't that well read so I mean it was like a pretty book that I saw in a bookstore seriously and I and I, I had focused on the African-American studies in in um, in college to, so you know I didn't know who he was but basically I, I it was that kind of moment you all I think we all have that book that changes you and I think that that book uh, his books had that kind of really, really profound effect in which afterwards I didn't really see the world the same way. And that was just because he explained to me what it meant to be white. Um, and I hadn't really thought of, and I say this in the book, I hadn't really thought of myself as, I mean, obviously I knew I was white, but white people I think tend to go move through the world just thinking of themselves as, as sort of, I mean, essentially human. I mean, they're not thinking of themselves as I define myself by my education or I define myself by my maybe my gender, I define myself by my personality, my profession, whatever. There's this kind of way in which they live in which they do not think that, that their, their race um, has this, you know, has determined everything, essentially. Right. And so they, I think that the way that he explains this to white people is, is, is extraordinary. And, I, um, and after that, you know, I had seen a documentary about him in which he had been, uh, it showed footage of him in Istanbul, and he's he's walking through the streets, and it was this kind of gorgeous black and white footage. And he said that he felt more comfortable in Istanbul as a black gay man in the fifties, in the sixties, than he had felt in France and in Paris and New York in the in the forties and fifties. And you know, this didn't this was very surprising to me, mostly because I didn't really know anything about Turkey. I had never been anywhere, and I still had these ideas about. Eastern countries as being sort of behind us in some way. Um, and so I, I thought, well, you know, Paris or New York must be more progressive than Istanbul. Of course, I had no idea what it was like to be a black man in Paris and Istanbul in the 40s and 50s. And so hence, there was so much ignorance here. But there, the, the, the one good thing about this was that it made me want to go to Istanbul. And I think the reason why was because I was still kind of clinging to James Baldwin as this person who had all of these answers. I mean, I really did think of him as, as a prophet and um, I thought that maybe, you know, there was something that he had discovered uh, in Istanbul, you know, either the fact that he felt so comfortable there. Maybe that was something that I needed to understand. What was that about? Um, but also, you know, what was it like for him as an American? I really and, and also how did he experience it as a black man? And so all of those things. To, to a large degree, made me apply for this fellowship to move to Turkey because I had never been there and I knew nothing about it. And, you know, most of my friends were shocked when I made this decision because the, the fellowship was for two and a half years. I changed my entire life and I was 29. I wasn't that young. Um, so, you know, I, when I got there, though, uh, what I did discover was that Baldwin had done all of these interviews uh, with Turkish journalists in the 60s and this was this, you know, obviously it was a turbulent time all over the world. It was a really, I think, well, time that people are very nostalgic for in, in Istanbul because it was quite liberal and open. And um, he was saying that he, for the first time, was seeing how, how the U.S. was using Turkey as a kind of satellite country, that it was a sort of ping pong ball between them and the Soviets. And he was seeing the way that the U.S. was unloading all of this aid onto this country, this third country, as a way of sort of manipulating it. And he got really scared. I mean, he said this, I'm watching this with terror because if, who are we to, to be, you know, basically directing the rest of the world? And who are we to be saying that we're extending our values um, to the rest of the world? Because what are those values? We have this incredibly violent race problem at home that was being lived on the streets at that very time in those dec in, in, during those years. And he said, well, so what are we, what are these values that we are extending ar around the rest of the world? And I think that that right there was this kind of prism where I felt like I could connect, you know, uh, through Baldwin, uh, his, the, the, our race problems at home and the way that that's connected to empire abroad. And I think that he really kind of did that for me for the first time. There's been a lot of books written about race and empire, of course, but, um, but it was the way that he kind of captured it that that made a lot more sense to me, I guess. Right. It's interesting, you know, thinking about the dynamic that that you describe and that I think is is accurate in terms of this uh, disconnect between the the, the uh, America as it extends itself globally and the domestic sphere. 
and Baldwin talking about sort of seeing that creeping, uh, you know, power slash dynamic emanating from the states outward. And I think it's interesting to, to think about how the domestic racial history and the lack of recognition and acknowledgement of its, of its true nature, uh, and the ignorance of what actually happened and the ongoing, uh, systematic oppression, you know, of people of color that's a result of that history. And it's still not actually studied, not taught, not, not known by everybody, really, being blacks and whites across the board. Um, and it feels like, you know, it's, it's almost like a precursor because if we're ignorant, uh, about, you know, the Middle East or places in Asia and yet we're willing to send our military and drop bombs and then stop paying attention and just the whole, <laughs> the yeah. whole troubling dynamic prior to that, we were ignorant of our own history here in the country, both with the indigenous population. And, um, I see them as very connected. And I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, we make the Germans obviously teach the history of, of the third Reich and the Nazi era, you know, uh, in depth and warts and all, you know, is this kind of insurance policy that they, uh, won't quote unquote, won't do it again. And yet we haven't applied the same standard to ourselves. And what would happen if we did, you know, what would happen to our foreign policy if we actually taught our domestic history at an accurate level, I would have to believe that there would be an, a massive uptick in empathy and that if you understood the, the history of black America and, and what happened to the, the folks who were here when the, when the colonists got here and you really kind of broke it down and you absorbed it and acknowledged it. And this isn't about shame and guilt because obviously some suburban teenager in North Carolina is not responsible for that uh, you know, today in his life, although he's benefiting from that history. That if we actually understood that at a deep, deep level, it's just hard to imagine we would then turn around and invade Iraq, you know, or do things like that without, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think they're very connected on some level. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And I, I think the suburban kid in North Carolina, I mean, I think, you know, it's probably somewhat similar to the experience. If you were to suddenly learn that history, it's similar to the experience I had because I didn't learn it growing up. And I grew up in a pretty much a white town. I mean, there were towns of, of different, you know, different communities all around. It was the Jersey Shore. But my town, my high school was, for the most part, you know, the children of European, white European immigrants, descendants, whatever, um, Italians, Irish, Polish, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think that when I went to college and, and started reading books about uh, African-American history, it was, I was really angry. I mean, because basically what you're also not being taught is it's, it's who you are. If, if, if you, if you realize that if you start to understand how the white identity was very much formed and created, the ideas about themselves were drawn in, drawn from and in opposition to um, the, the black slaves once you start to understand that, you're, you're realizing that by not knowing this complex history, you just really don't know anything about yourself. And, and then also that the fact that you have all of this, you are who you are to some degree because the country was built on the, on the backs of other people and on, on slave labor and that that has given you this vast advantage. Um, I think that, you know, depending on what kind of personality you have, it might make you think differently, differently in the future about how you wield power or how, how much, how great you think power is, you know, because if power is always achieved by, by oppressing. I mean, I think that the weirdest thing about Americans is that they really think that they are the greatest country in the world just because they're so great, you right. know, not because that was something that they took and that they took by largely, to a large degree, violent means. Like, I just don't think that, you know, and, and that, that would haunt, haunt you and haunt your behavior for your life as it should, um, if you properly understood that. Uh, and yeah, maybe we wouldn't invade Iraq. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I guess I was that suburban kid in North Carolina. I grew up in the South and, you know, it's interesting about the U.S. and the South because the South obviously, as I've often said, because I, I, I don't really I don't really want to live in the South again, but I visit it all the time, and I do love the South, and I defend it all the time. Um, and you know, it's the one it's the one part of the U.S. that has lost a war, so to speak. I mean, you know, right, right, putting right, right. Vietnam aside, but it's actually a, it's a, it's a region of the country that that has shame, right? That that was defeated, that had a 
that had a uh, you know a period and then and then you know was invaded and had a lot of uh, you know Sherman's March the whole thing and so on the one hand obviously it has perpetual perpetual problems in terms of race and whatnot although again south side of chicago you know east L, you know south central la um and birmingham they're very different but they're very much the same uh and i i've often thought that the south you know has the seeds or the saplings of some of the potential to 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 evolve these questions in a way that ironically you know, from a detached, you know, uh, northern or elitist perspective, you wouldn't expect it to come from, quote unquote, the deepest part of the of the historical problem. But I think actually it can. And, you know, as, as someone growing up there and going to integrated schools and playing basketball, um, you know, I, there's a lot of closeness between blacks and whites in the South, despite the horrible, horrible history and it, the fact that we still haven't acknowledged it. And uh, it's interesting about the South, I think, that it is is a region that has a more complex history because the the other parts of America, you know, it's just a continuum of that myth, right? There isn't this yeah. uh, this obvious dark spot that you cannot ignore. Uh, that's not true about the South. In fact, in many ways, it's defined domestically by that you know period and by that past. Um, so that was, yeah. that was no, really a, think, that wasn't a question. That was just an observation. No, but I think I think you might be right. I mean, I'm trying to remember what Baldwin said about this. I think he fluctuated because I think that. There was a period when he was more optimistic and he might have intimated that again, yeah, you have such an in intimate relationship between two people, which I think you have in the South in a way that you don't in the North. Um, there's a different kind of knowledge of one another and maybe more potential to love one another. Right. Um, but then I think that that also <laughs> uh, can turn into something much uglier. Um, but I think this, this idea of how intimate you, how well you know one another is another one of the big problems between Americans and foreigners. For example, what I was discovering when I moved abroad was that Turks knew Americans really well. Greeks knew Americans really well. Egyptians knew Americans really well. They know so much about us. Um, and we know nothing about them. Nothing. I mean, we, yeah. and, and, you know, it's, it's such a, a profound imbalance. But it means that they actually have the potential. I mean, when we talk about why do they hate us and all of this, they have much more of a potential to love us than they once maybe even did because they know us. But we, I mean, we're kind of living in this kind of this world of no feeling, you know, where right. where we we are not even conscious of them and we, we we can't love them if we know nothing about them at all. And I think that 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 was one of the things that I thought was quite a tragedy about this relationship because I mean, it's a relationship with so much potential. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very common to hear, you know, in your, if you're in a cab and, you know, in, in Vietnam or in, in Europe or anywhere to have a, you know, a cab driver. And of course, if you're in Europe, maybe it's not even someone who's a, you know, quote unquote white European person say something like, you know, I love Americans, but I, I really have a big problem with America, the country. Yeah, yeah, I used to hear that all the time. And at first, you know, when you hear the first time you hear it, you think, oh, he's, you know, what does that mean exactly? I guess I'm one of the good ones. And, and what, you know, what's the difference? The, the, the music, the movies, the people that they actually get to talk to who are there, and obviously have taken the time to come visit that part of the world, positive. But then they pivot to obviously the, the governmental, military projected power. And uh, yeah, it's, it's like basically, two, it's like dating two different people. Um, yeah, yeah, they they're able though to hold both of those ideas in their head at the same time. You know, it's a it's a government that they are they are opposing and you know, I talk in the book also about this idea of two Americas because you know, a lot of these people, a lot of these foreigners admire a lot of things about America's domestic project or or things about American life, the potential for individuals, the you know, the certain kind of individual freedom all of that stuff they do they do think sounds pretty great you know if they've been there or not right um but they also that has nothing to do with how they see the country as a foreign power but we we don't tend to have these two ideas at all um which is which is quite interesting yeah and it feels like you know the deck is not to say woe is us but the deck is certainly i think it's stacked against us on some level and again i don't i don't i try not to be cynical about it but you know, we are isolated geographically, you know, on some level. We are a massive, massive country. Even our, even our ignorance of, of Mexico and Canada is, you know, 
it's partially explained by our ethnocentrism and our cultural global dominance for the past you know, over 60, 70 years. But also if you live in, you know, uh, you know, Alabama or Nevada, getting to Mexico or into Canada or Montreal is, you know, it's, it's a haul. So it's not like Europe or even in Asia where you have a lot of countries close together. So we have that going against us. And, yeah. and, and you know, and, um, and so it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, I, you know, the prospects for that kind of broad, um, mind opening dynamic. Uh, and then, and then you layer on top of that the fact that we're going through this unprecedented level of exponential technological change, which has got everybody, you know, kind of on edge and trying to, and, and, and battling this sense of disorientation as history speeds up because it literally does and things that yeah. are happening so fast and that's on top of it. And then, as you said, the economic, underpinnings are weakening domestically so it's not a great it's not a great environment for let's just call it broadly white america to 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 sort of grow this this uh, you know grow the empathy and grow the understanding when everything is less secure and the prospects are a little bit dimmer and uh so it's like you said it's it's probably going to have to get a little bit worse before it gets better yeah. Although, the, and then, you know, for the argument that things will slowly, gradually change in some kind of peaceable way, I mean, there is also something I've noticed in the culture that has shifted. Like, there's a lot more, there are a lot more popular TV shows and movies and, you know, things like that, that are quite critical of the U.S. and, and of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. It doesn't really go remarked on very, very often. Right. Um, unless they are explicitly on that subject. But I just, I think that there's a lot more stuff in the culture like that. Like even The Shape of Water, I mean, that movie that won the, the Academy right. Award. I mean, nobody really talked about how, I mean, it really was, maybe they did and I missed it. I don't know, did they? About how it was really a, quite critical of that Cold War American man and how violent and awful he was. The Russians comparatively seemed kind of, funny and sweet. Right. You know, I think it was just interesting that that film was just kind of almost like it was automatic that that, that, that figure was the, the main character in that film was going to be a brute, you know, a really disgusting right. yeah. man. No, it's true. Um, and it was very interesting. That's true. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to Turkey, obviously, because you've, you've been there to witness, you know, how the climate has changed, the failed coup. Um, can can you sort of just talk a little bit, I would guess at the highest level, it'd be great to sort of, and you talked a little bit about the post-World War II um, American aid slash, uh, you know, bulwark against the Soviet Union dynamic, a little bit of sort of U.S.-Turkey, you know, history 101 at the broadest level from sort of post-World War II, and I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about What's happening over there, and and how how you, how you and your and your friends are reacting to the changing climate? So it's a two two well, part. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about Erdogan maybe after. The, I mean, what I can kind of connect the the recent attempted military coup to the history because his Turkey has had many many coups. Um, it's this was the fifth one technically, and um, all of these coups have been massive turning points in modern Turkish history. Um, and to a large degree, most Turks believe that most of those coups were aided by, supported by, encouraged by, you know, the United States. And the reason why, I mean, it's, it's not illogical, um, because Turkey is a part of NATO. It was one of its first members. Basically, they joined, uh, they wanted to join NATO, even if they had, you know, certain factions within their political, um, sphere that were, skeptical of the United States. Stalin at that time was making these gestures for um, the Bosphorus Straits, and there was this kind of Russia, Soviet aggression coming their way. So they decided to join join NATO. Um, and so the Turkish military has been very much bound up in NATO and in, 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 in the American military ever since then. Um, so the, the logic is simply that the Americans, whenever they wanted, could sort of just say to the generals, hey, you know, stage a military coup. That's kind of the idea. Right. And the, the generals um, were running the country, basically, because Ataturk was a, was a military general. Um, Turkey has a parliamentary democracy. It has, it has had free elections since the 1950, since, since 1950, in fact. 
Um, but the generals were always were always kind of running the country, and it was a very strictly. I mean, for a while, it was a strictly secular military that changed eventually, um, and they were enforcing a, this what is called Kemalism, this kind of way of life that is secular, Western look, looking, but very very Turkish, very very much Turkish. Um, and they were, even though they were Western looking, they were very skeptical of the West and a, a bit afraid of the West also because the Western powers had invaded Turkey in, during World War One and tried to, you know, cut it up and steal it from them. So, um, you know, Turkey has had this, even as its political history has developed or tried to develop on its own every 10 years, 1960, 1971, 1980, 1997, and then 2016, there was a military coup. And it kind of would interrupt the history and scramble everything again. And um, what the 1960 coup is a kind of complicated one. I won't get into that one. But 1971 and 1980 were very much Cold War coups. And they were in reaction to the fact that there were leftists. Uh, there, there was a kind of left-right right. street war taking place in Turkey. And that the leftists, uh, they believed, were aligned with the communists. And the Americans were terrified that Turkey was going to become communist. And so were the generals. They didn't want that either. So yep. really, the left was the enemy. Um, and at that time, that was when, in the, that was when the, the right-wing military began siding with the religious people, actually, to combat this leftist communist threat. And I think this is really misunderstood about Turkey. Um, that it's, it's, uh, the secularist military has been very much the people who has been the, the, the body that has encouraged this rise of, of religious nationalism that we now see embodied in Erdogan. Um, so all of, you know, the, so the, essentially what Baldwin saw of the U.S. getting involved in Turkey, I mean, the U.S. did have this tremendous effect on all these countries in terms of just wanting to make sure that communism never, you know, never took over. And that just disrupted their political trajectory uh, quite severely. Right. Um, and so now we have Erdogan. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think your book, it, it's, it, I'm sorry, I was going to say no, the, the, the way you no, describe, I think the, the ghoul in us, right, and their connection to that movement. Uh, and like you said, that, you know, internally connecting to the the religious groups to create a, a sort of coalition i suppose in a way to combat leftist movements is fascinating yeah. i don't think understood at all but obviously no. that that dynamic has soured uh on the domestic front in the last x number of years it sounds like and obviously the, the coup the failed coup is the symbol i suppose of that final uh verdict uh, from air well, perspective I mean, I can put it this way. All of, after the 1980 coup and after the military started kind of encouraging the right and, and, and encouraging Islam in a way to counter, you know, godless communism or whatever, they started, they started supporting various factions in the religious community. And, you know, Erdogan was sort of part of one of those factions and the Gulen movement was part of another one. And, and the Gulen movement was, very pro-American, or they claim to be, and very uh, anti-communist. And so, you know, over time, these groups were nurtured, and some of them are Islamic Brotherhood, some of them are just political groups, but eventually, in order to come to political power, Erdogan and Gulen, they hooked up. And that was what the AKP, that's what this political party has been for the last 15 years. It was very much both of these groups. And then they split, you know, they started having a falling out, and uh, the story is, is that the Gulenists had basically infiltrated the military and tried to stage a coup. And the reason why everybody thinks that the Americans were involved is because the leader of the movement, right. Fethullah Gulen, lives in Pennsylvania. You know, you've, I've seen you, you know, on, on interviews and videos talk a little bit about um, sort of the things that Erdogan was saying earlier in his rise and sort of, you know, uh, sort of, I guess, uh, you, you've witnessed firsthand now. Sort of, uh, you've been up close now for more than a decade to kind of this 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 turn toward more author authoritarianism. And I guess what I, I often wonder in these dynamics historically is the extent to which that path was known by the main actors involved well in advance, or that it's organically happening either consciously or unconsciously. And uh, you know, I think you, you might have made the comment in one interview, sort of, you know, we believed him or. We, that's what we thought he was. He meant at the time about certain policies or stances with regard to the West or, or rights within the country. You know, do you feel like these these things were known to him and his his close associates well in advance, or is this a 
how do you see that dynamic in terms of uh, you know motive intention and and how that plays out if if my question is making sense yeah no no it does i think that the misconception though is that you know um what it, it, Turkey was always because it was always authoritarian. It has never been right. not authoritarian. It's never been liberal, and it's always been run by the right wing in some incarnation. So whether that's the generals, you might have had like a few prime ministers who were leftist, but they still had certain strains of, of right wing nationalism even in there. It's a very diff- it's like this country is just so complicated. Um, but for the most part, the the prime ministers and and the military it's been from the center the, the right or the center right, and then you've always had the military running the place. So 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 weirdly, one by the time he came along, what he was proposing was was liberalism. He was going to be, you know, he, what, right. what people believed was that he was going to be a break from this past. And that was because he was promising to get the military out of politics, which a lot of the other parties would have been afraid to do. And the other parties would have been afraid to do it because they were afraid of religious people getting more power and because they were afraid of the Kurds. Right. And, and losing their own, you know, losing their own power or whatever. And so, so, so that period when I moved to Turkey in 2007 and I was listening to Erdogan and a lot of people were saying, oh, he's using the language of human rights and of liberalism and, and free markets. And it sounded like us. I mean, basically what it was was that it was this like very conventional idea of what a democratic country would be in the capitalistic mode of the United States. Right. And he was just, he was just using all of that language and and people were very afraid of him. Of course, they, they could see these kind of strains of toughness and, and even authoritarianism in his personality. Right. Um, But at the same time, you know, he had gotten a lot of things done when he was the mayor of Istanbul and they, they just were like, well, let's just try this. Um, and I think that the story of why this didn't all work out is, is also a very complicated one. But I think that a simple way to look at it is, look, if you have a, con- a country that has always operated in a kind of authoritarian way where there is one person in power and they have control over all of the other administrative bodies of the state, you know, they control the judiciary, the they control the, the the military, they control the executive, everything, and then they also control the media. Which is how Turkey had always been run. Right. Essentially, what we just had was a turnover in power. Got it. And suddenly, this guy who came from, you know, a, a down at the heel neighborhood and had you know no money growing up, and you know suddenly became the most powerful person in the country. It was crazy. You know, it's right. it's. Um, yeah. And so, so then, yeah. yeah. So then, then the, the 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 relative level of repressive tactics or arrests and whatnot is just kind of a it's a it's an ebb and flow between these various uh, moments uh, of essentially a continuum of authoritarian rule at different levels of I guess uh, intensity as far as how it affects the normal citizens. Um, I think that what's different about this period is that that we've never had. They've never had a situation where a political party that had 52% of the vote um, that was also in control, you know, first of all, a political party has never been in control of the military before. He has the military, he has the police, he runs the government, um, he runs every, he has everything. This has never happened before. So okay. I think that in terms of power and then also in terms of wealth, the country has never been this wealthy. Right. So it's it's just absolutely unprecedented and yeah now what we're seeing is is a real you know we're he- it's headed towards real dictatorship right uh good good segue uh, you wrote a piece in vogue back in january of 17 sort of about you know i guess the question was where you going where you going to stay and um you know one thinks of baldwin also living abroad and sort of ultimately saying you know i'm going to go back uh <laughs> How's that dynamic for you with, with respect to living in Turkey and, and the environment there, the safety there, quote unquote, and uh, and just in general, your connection as sort of this expat with this perspective and, and uh, as it relates to, you know, the United States and, and your your own life as a journalist? Um, I think that, you know, I wrote that article about not leaving after a series of violent events in Turkey, you probably remember there were a bunch of bombs going off. Uh, the airport was bombed and then there was the military coup. Um, and the last thing after that was the nightclub bombing, which was horrible, um, or shooting, sorry. But, but I wrote the piece before that. Um, 
I was essentially responding to this idea that you hear from people in the West, a lot of people in New York, my friends, or, you know, it's just sort of how can you, why would you stay in this violent place? And when I started thinking about that, I, 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 you know, my first thought was actually, wait, what are you talking about? This is the safest place I've ever lived. I mean, I, I have always felt in this city that it very, very safe. And I think that's because it is a more conservative place in some ways is also just a more communal society. So right. you're out in the streets. If someone, you know, you have a chance that if someone does something to you, you know, you're out late at night or something, someone is out there on the, there's a, like a lot of other people out on the sidewalk who are going to witness it, or you're going to be able to yell to someone, you know, help me and someone right. will come. You, these neighborhoods are very intimate. They're very small. They're very close. And you feel this kind of, I think as a woman here, I have actually felt a kind of safety, which I think contradicts what people expect. You know, I'm living in a Muslim country, right. et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that was my response to that. And also, I think the difference is, of course, that the whole world feels violent and scary and um, as if it's falling apart. So whether you live in Istanbul or New York, I'm not really sure anymore what the difference is. Um, as for, you know, just being an expat in my work and all of that, I, I, I think... I've been here long enough that I can carry with me the lessons of having lived abroad, but it is just a very special place to live. I still love the city as much as I always did. And, you know, on a very practical level, I can't afford America as a, as a, as a freelance writer right. in a lot of places in the U S where I used to live like New York city. So, so, um, so it was, you know, it's, it's, it's in some ways I feel a lot of guilt living here because I live a very special rare life where I am affected of course, by what is happening here, but it does not directly affect me. Whereas you're watching, Turks being affected by this change of the country every day and certainly the, the economic problems. So it's, I think that, you know, eventually the reason to go home might be that, you know, it just feels, um, feels a little bit strange. Yeah. To not yeah. be, not, not be suffering the same things that, that the people of the country are suffering. Right. Right. No, it's, um, there's probably a whole nother book there about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the mental space one gets into, uh, you know, having lived abroad as you have and uh, and the perspective you have and what it feels like to be back in the States when you're here. And I know you visit a lot. Um, well, look, Susie, in any closing thoughts uh, as we wrap things up? Um, I don't think so. But if you have any other questions, you're welcome to call me back. <laughs> no, sounds good. Great. Well, thanks for, thanks for spending time today. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks again to my guest, Susie Hansen. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.